0: I think it's important as we think about what's happening here in God's response to Job that we, that we keep a lot of things held together. There's, I don't know whose expression it is, but it's a good one, that two things can be true at the same time. Our tendency is always to think this thing is true in exclusion of everything else. But two things can be true at the same time. In fact, more than that. Yes, God is putting Job in his place. But we tend to think that God is putting Job in his place the way we would put someone in their place, the way we would back them down and try to humble them, uh, even when it's inappropriate for us and it is appropriate for God. And, And the result of what will happen is that God will put Job in his place. He will be set right with regards to his posture toward God. But God's... God's attitude in this, the way God is doing it, the the what God is doing, is is not about humiliating Job. Uh, It's about proving that the faith he has given Job and the wisdom that he has given Job will prevail even over human weakness. That's the issue with Satan. Uh, the accusation that it can't be the case that Job would abandon God if things turned against him and things have turned against him. Job has not abandoned God, but he is beginning to talk as the sinners do. That's Elihu's accusation. And now God will come and straighten him out. And it's not this humiliating chastisement. It is humbling because to engage with God and to, to see God for who he really is is naturally going to be humbling for us. But it's not, it's not purposefully humiliating. Because in fact, even though Job has spoken a lot of these words that he, he should not have said, he, he's, he's thought things about God and about himself that are not right. When God says to Job, dress for action like a man, I will question you and you will make it known to me, there's a a backhanded compliment in that, which is that Job can do it. That that Job can engage in this dialogue with God and and come to the right conclusion. (laughs) That the result of this will be truth. And that God knows this is how it will be because God knows Job, because God gave Job faith, because Satan's accusations are wrong. Satan accuses God as though God is an Arminian. He he accuses God as though faith is just a work that we make ourselves, that we're held in God's hand by our own power and not by God's. And so Satan expects, of course, Job will fall away if certain things happen. And that's not right. God is completely confident in Job's faith. Why? He gave it to him. He's completely confident in Job's righteousness. Why? He gave it to him. It's Christ's righteousness. And so there's a compliment here that that Job, yes, he's going to have to dress for action. He's going to have to get on the wrestling mat. He's going to have to be ready to go toe-to-toe in this intellectual, spiritual battle with God, but it's also two friends sitting across a table from one another, engaging in conversation to come to the truth. It just so happens the truth is that one of these friends is God and the other is not. And that's the truth that we need to come to. So I'm, I'm not trying to run away from the where were you when, you know, God establishing his godness and Job's creatureliness. That's absolutely true. But two things are true at the same time. And one of them is that God is not out to humiliate Job the way we would think about it. He's out to prove Job's faith wisdom and righteousness against Satan and God has no fear of what will happen here that's what's taking place in uh, the dialogue
1: in any of your readings have you read anybody theologian or otherwise who has written what Job's response ideally should have been
0: oh that's a good question
1: I've never
0: read that. I think Ash in his longer commentary comes closest because he does talk about, he he sort of highlights the points where Job goes too far or where Job goes astray. Um, Because so much of what, so much of Job's response is okay. It really is. And so it's not like you have to say, no, don't do any of that and do this instead. It's no, your response should look a lot like Job looks, except on these points and these points appear in the early arguments just as little blips they're just blips on the radar and that's why we talked about when you're comforting somebody and they have those blips sometimes you just have to recognize that's the the pain speaking and not not faith and just don't get hung up on a sentence that somebody utters But then as we move later in the speech, and particularly in Job's summary, which is kind of his conclusion of how things actually are. I've listened to all my counselors. I've given them responses. And now I am summarizing things as they actually are. And his summary is God owes me an answer because this doesn't make any sense. And that's where you have to stop. It's really that fork in the road. Because I would even say it's not that the blips should be there perfect faith in trusting God isn't even going to have those blips along the way. Of God. But if we're going to analyze this as a, a, a possible human response, Job's is, Job's is really good up to a point. And then he goes over here, and where he should go is here. This is where Elihu starts yelling at him. He doesn't respond, so there's an, a presumed he continues. And then this is where God speaks... And he gets to the conclusion that he could have just jumped to without God intervening. So I think think the answer to what the Christian should do looks a lot like Job, who actually responds to Elihu, because we're not going to get, more than likely, God to speak to us directly and personally to uh, make up for any of the omissions in Elihu's argument.
1: So the bottom line is, um, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and, or um, take this cup from me, nevertheless, your will be done. That's basically all we've got.
0: That Those are the verbal responses and the heart posture Um I think the step beyond that that we've talked about the last two weeks is to actually affirm that it is good. That's the New Testament. I won't say gloss, but the New Testament makes everything in the Old Testament more difficult. People say the New Testament's the gracious one. and the, No, the New Testament makes everything that was in the Old Testament more difficult. It's It's not enough that uh, you know, we're going to say explicitly, don't commit adultery. We're also going to say explicitly that lust makes you an adulterer. That was true in the Old Testament, but now we're going we're to make that the law. The New Testament makes things harder. And I think one of, it doesn't change them. It, mm-hmm. it voices a layer that wasn't voiced before. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Is, boy, you people really think you've reduced God to this fixed uh, set of standards that even you can't keep, but they fool themselves into thinking they could keep them. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did. And Jesus says, you've, you've, <laughs> you think you've boiled faithfulness down to its essence, and what you've really done is robbed it of its meaning. And so Jesus puts back in the meaning, doesn't change anything, but it makes everything harder because now we can't just be good little external law keepers like the Pharisees said.
1: So the last step is, your joy. Soul is good, even though I don't understand it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's the count it all, Joy. I do. I, th- I think that's the New Testament. And again, it's not that it's not present here, but if we think about the Bible as unfolding and unpacking deeper layers of godliness over time, uh, I do think the New Testament is filled With so many examples, not just of acknowledging what Job will acknowledge here, that you're God and I have no rights, but that it's good and joy and contentment and all of the, the positive response to it, not just the neutral response. And notice what God does not do with Job. He... Answers a lot of important questions. He answers the most important questions in his speech to Job. But he doesn't answer Job's question. Job will never, well, Job never knows in the book of Job what we knew back in chapters 1 and 2. So it's not that there is no answer. We've known the answer all along. And Job is begging for this answer. And God doesn't give it to him.
1: But we still don't know the why.
0: Why God picked Job?
1: We don't know what was being accomplished by Satan's and God's... Proving his faith.
0: Yeah, the, the, the defense of God as being worthy of so
1: love, proven,
0: faith, and obedience.
1: So is everybody in the book of Hebrews that it's in the hall of Fa- faith hall of fame, were they, are they in there just because God was proving their faith?
0: No, we don't. it doesn't we don't s- know that. No, but we do know about Job because we have chapters 1 and 2. We're told the heavenly council story for a purpose. And the purpose of the heavenly council story is that there is a war in the heavenlies taking place to which we are not usually privy. And there are moments in that war where God decides he's going to take the battle. And he, he picked Job for that battlefield. And gave Satan this reign to prove Satan wrong in front of the whole universe that God is worthy of love and devotion and faith regardless of what God does for our circumstances and that the faith that God gives can persevere. I mean, that should be a powerful help to us. Uh, you know, Of course, we hope that God never puts us in a place like Job's, But And if he does, it's nice to have this example. (laughs) But the the powerful takeaway for us is that the faith God gives can persevere through this. The faith God gives can persevere through this. Job choosing the wrong, it's an ungracious way of saying it, but Job choosing the wrong path for a while. And Job not even responding to preaching. God himself had to come down and preach to Job for Job to... But the faith persevered. God didn't come down and wipe Job away. He came down and gave Job the opportunity to prove his faith. And he did. And the faith that God gives will not be upended by even the most disastrous of circumstances. And when we are experiencing those circumstances... And the weakness that we feel threatens to undo us, it's such a good reminder that that is my experience of my faith. My actual faith, the thing that I have to have on the last day to stand with God, isn't bothered at all by my circumstances. So I don't really love the idea that we should have more faith or that... Faith is an objective reality when it comes to salvation, but I understand the way we're using the language is I feel weak in faith. I don't feel like a strong follower of God. That's fine, but we should remember the way we feel about our faith and the reality of our faith are two different things. And one of them can feel incredibly puny, but the reality of the thing doesn't change. And that's why God's so confident that he can come down here... And have this uh, tete-a-tete with Job. And Job will be fine. Job will vindicate God. Uh, God could not be that confident if God were dependent upon humans. I mean, this is why you want to make an argument with with an Arminian. Uh, To me, this is a great place to go. God has no business being this confident that Job is righteous. If Job's faith, is dependent on Job. That is dangerous. That's dangerous for God to to tie his reputation with Satan and the universe to whether or not Job comes through. How could God do such a thing? He gave Job faith. (laughs) It's no risk for God. Uh, Satan uh, wants us to feel so afraid that he could separate us from the love of God in Christ. Jesus never talks that way. Like, Jesus doesn't talk as though it's some hard work for him to keep Satan from stealing his sheep. He he goes to the gate, and he calls, and they follow him. That's how Jesus talks about it. I mean, um, now our experience, much more dramatic and alarming. But the heavenly reality... Pretty straightforward. All right. So here's the answer in a few parts that God will give Job. He does answer Job, just not the question that Job is asking. Oh, first, before I get there, let me read a little bit from this section of Derek Thomas on the mystery of God. I thought this was a really good section. He says, mystery is a vital element of all our theologizing. God dwells in unapproachable light. He's greater than we can ever fathom. Though we insist that what we do know of God, we know truly, it remains true that what we know of him, we know only a little. And then he reads this uh, Calvin quote that I mentioned last week. And he says, For Calvin, the best help to offer those in trouble is that they should patiently yield themselves to the purposes of a sovereign God. This is Job's patience. It is his willingness in the end to submit to God's ways despite his lack of understanding. So the patience of Job... How should we respond in this situation is a a genuine, willing submission to God's will despite our lack of understanding. God doesn't have to explain it to us, and then we'll be okay with submitting to it. It's we're okay submitting to it because God is the one who is doing it. Um, Job's efforts to understand the ways of God in the world had come to nothing. Like Asa in Psalm, uh, Asaph in Psalm 73, Job had discovered that the very attempt to comprehend God's ways has given him a headache. Psalm 73 is a good one on that. Again, going back to what we said last week, God's ways are such a mystery for us because our goals are so misaligned with God's. Sometimes you look at, think about how you will watch somebody do something. And you think, why in the world are they doing that? Why in the world would you do it that way? Why would they do And then you realize in the end, they were trying to accomplish something different than what you thought. You would assumed, oh, they're trying to move this. And then, no, they're actually trying to do this other thing, which is why they've done it the other way. Sometimes they're trying to accomplish the same thing we're trying to accomplish. We would just do it better. <laughs> uh, but no, very often, we don't know what people are trying to accomplish. We make strange judgments about what they're doing. Our goals and God's are very misaligned most of the time. Our goals are no trouble. Our goals are give me a life of no trouble, less trouble, which sometimes means more control, sometimes it means less engagement. We'll pull whatever toggle we need to pull to make our lives less trouble. More money, more work, more entertainment, more whatever. We're just pulling levers for that security and satisfaction. I want to be safe and I want to be satisfied. And then we pull all these crazy levers. And then we look at the stuff God does and we says, God, God, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) If you're trying to make me secure and satisfied, this isn't working. And then God would say, "Uh, what are you, I'm not, no, you should be secure and satisfied in me. I'm trying to make you like Jesus. Which levers would you pull if your goal was to be more like Jesus? And we would still say different lovers, yeah. but we'd, we'd be wrong, right?
2: So it's so, um, sort of, to me, more like a, a process. It's not easy to say, oh, okay, this is your real God, or, you know, you're trying to grow me or something in the middle of something that's really bad, right? To so think with God, it's a rest um, because during that wrestling, and Job's wrestling through all these chapters, <coughs> you're in a way growing closer to God because you are wrestling with God. You're in like a constant, even if it's a conflict, communication with him. And you're, you're searching, you're reading, you're, you're looking deeper than you are when your life is just comfortable. Not that anybody wants that, but you probably spend less time. With God
0: during those comfort times when things are just the the wrestling and the point of the wrestling is not that God is going to relent or be subdued. That doesn't happen. I mean, one of the things people get wrong, I think, about the Genesis story and wrestling with God is is this impressiveness that that um, Jacob was never subdued. And it's like, no, the point is God is infinitely unsubduable, mm. infinitely. And so you can wrestle with God as long as you want to wrestle with God. And when you wrestle with God, you're close to God and you're going to know God better. And you're... But it, it's not as though it's wrestling with God in the sense of this is a fight you can win. Oh, really? Or even your goal for this fight um, should be something other than being closer to God. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, you're never going to, I don't
0: even think it's a winning, it's just uh that not a, like a match, it's just that you're, I guess, constantly impressive presence. Yeah, be, being, when our, I think I said this in a sermon last month, the, the, the real question of our trials and of our successes is in them, are we walking closer to Christ or are we walking away from Christ? And our temptation, frankly, in both, is to walk away. We move away from him in success because we think we don't need him. We're doing just fine. And we lose sight of the fact that he's the one who gave us every good gift. And we move away from him in suffering because it hurts. It hurts to to go to God and say, you wanted me to feel this pain. And I'm supposed to draw closer to you. Who in the world draws closer to someone who hurts them? I mean, that's a really reasonable question. Who draws closer to someone who hurts them? And yet God says that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Um, So God will set Job right in this wrestling, and it'll come in several parts, and he'll help Job remember who God is, and what God's concerns are, which are not the same as Job's. The first part, chapter 38, 4 through almost the end of the chapter, 4 through 38, is about the place of evil in the created order. The created order is good, God is good, and yet evil has a place, and that is really confusing and that's one of the things that God is going to unpack here Um, but these first five passages use a lot of language to represent evil and the place of evil it's the language of the sea which in the old testament sea language is evil chaos Uh, the sea is is dark and dangerous and out of our control and is often a picture for that darkness and even for death as, you, as you're dragged down into the sea. Uh, and so the point is that Job uh, is not going to understand everything that God is doing in his world because it's the, it's the paradox, or the, the word our friend Jim Van Erden uses, it's the counter-predictability of the gospel, how, how can you be raised up in glory? You have to go down into the grave. Um, the whole experience of becoming like Christ is the opposite. We have, to, we have to become low in humility in order to be glorified. We have to die to self in order to live. We have to, go, we have to grow downwards, becoming small in order to grow up into Christ. J.I. Packer said, Christians grow greater by getting smaller. And that's what God is going to unfold here for Job in chapter 38. So he starts out by talking about the joyful order of creation. Um, Noah, can you read... Uh, four through seven.
2: Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements, surely you know. When you stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy?
0: This is one of the things that's been very helpful the last few years about the some of the new documentaries that are coming out and the scientific discovery that's going on is we, we get reminded, it's why those ride and the Dance uh, documentaries, I think, are really, really helpful. We get reminded that there's an order to the universe, that that God laid out the universe with a set of blueprints and a plan. It's not haphazardly... Thrown together. Verse four: There's a foundation that's been laid. There are measurements that are drawn out. There are bases. Those are the secure footings for that pillars rest in. Verse six: There's a cornerstone that holds it all together. Everything about this world has an order. Creation is purposefully and properly ordered, and we. See that and learn about that and experience about that, especially in the material, the physical, the biochemical, the, the stuff that scientists study. Physical laws, uh, we, we get the orderliness. That's why we like those documentaries. You go and you see, wow, look at what God did. If this was one degree different, nothing exists. And uh, we, we like that. Carry that order that you're so infatuated with in the natural world and amazed by, and put exactly the same thing on the moral, social, and relational world. Because he built the same order. There's a moral order to his universe that he built. And just as we can see through earthquakes, tsunamis, Um, All all kinds of natural disasters, death and decay in the material world. We can see the effect of the fall on the order with which he built the material world. We all too well experience and know the disorder, the brokenness, the results of the fall, the death and decay in the moral and spiritual realms. But that doesn't deny the reality that he made them that way. And at the heart of that blueprint is justice. That's the heart of the blueprint is justice. And that's why we feel injustice so deeply. Injustice is is the moral equivalent of death and decay in the biological world. It is not as things ought to be. And that's what Job is really Struggling to understand. But just thinking about the order with which God created the world, what did it say there at the, at the end of that passage in verse 7? The sons of God shouted for joy. The, the, there's, there's an inherent joy in the order of creation. Things as they ought to be in each of these realms was glorious, is glorious. But our ability to see that order and to therefore share in that joy is is disconnected, is broken, not irreparably, but is broken by the fall and by the curse. Um. Proverbs 9, is 8 and 9 are really good about this. Wisdom pictured as a fine lady who built a grand house. Um, and C.S. Lewis does a good job of this in The Magician's Nephew. And The Magician's Nephew, Lewis describes the creation of Narnia. Do you remember how he describes God creates? He sings. A voice had begun to sing in the darkness. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth itself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful, he could hardly bear it. It's The creation is is... Unfathomably good. The, the blueprint from which God designed this world, physical, spiritual, moral, is unfathomably, unfathomably good. And Job has been denying that. In, in Job's lament, his wailing over his experience, which is understandable, but he, he thinks the evil and the injustice has wiped out the goodness of creation. It's, it's, it's cast a fog, but it's not wiped it out. Evil doesn't have the, the full word or the last word. Evil has no control. And so while evil can be a, a headache, figuratively and literally, um, e- evil can mar... Our experience of the creation, the creation is fundamentally God's, and God remains in control. And it is good and was good. To Job's John eyes, the evil and disorder in creation has wiped out its goodness, this is Ash, so that we're left with something fundamentally evil. No, says the Creator, when the cosmos was set in place, those who understood what was happening rejoiced, and they were right to rejoice The question is whether or not Job will align himself with this song of joy and will praise the goodness of creation even in the midst of his loss and sorrow. That's back to that. It was here in the Old Testament. The New Testament makes it more explicit, but it was always here that the way to find relief from the brokenness of creation is is to yet hold firm to the goodness of God in creation.
2: I'm just
0: thinking that, that that takes a while after tragedy. Yeah, our experience... You may see you, you, that, but you don't see it. You have to separate your, your experience in the moment f- from the fullness of reality, the full picture. And you will not understand the full picture, so you're supposed to understand the God who is sovereign over the full picture and the good heart of God. And when you're in that moment of bitter pain, you don't have to cry out with joy at the greatness of creation. You don't have to long to be nearer to the loving heart of God. But that's where you're going to get. By faith, that's where you have to get. is, Is the, I know it is better for me to walk toward him than away from him. And in order to do that rationally, you you have to believe he is good because no sane person walks closer to their abuser. A really important and one of the more difficult things to understand in all of this is that this evil that Shows up is not an intruder. It is um, in the it, <laughs> there was nothing except God, and God is the only one who can create. And when He made this universe, and He made His blueprints. And he made it good. And it was worthy of joy. There was no outside force from which this evil could come. It, it was a part of the blueprints. Now that's hard. How that is both true and, you know, God can't dwell with evil. Like there can be no darkness with his I, You're up in layers. I don't understand. But what God proclaimed to be good, this is Ash, and the angels sang about with joy, included in germ all that would transpire in its history, including what we call the fall and all of its entailments of evil. God tells Job that if he had perfect knowledge of the creation, he would understand that it not only was a source of joy, but it remains a source of joy. That that this evil, this fall, this injustice has not wiped out the good of the creation. It was in germ. It was part of the good plan of the creation. uh, Job did. Yeah. It didn't include evil. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Uh, we, we have to do this, make the same analogy that I think it was Kathy that made a few weeks ago where you have to, you have to think about the cross because that's the one we can wrap our brains around that something so evil could be ordained and purposed by God for this great good. That one we get you have to zoom that all the way back out to the creation level. The fact that evil is, the fact that it has a place at all in the creation was ordained by God for some greater good beyond our understanding.
3: Um. (laughs) For our, for my brain, is it, it's, it's hard for me to think about evil that way, but if I, if I fast forward to redemption, that redemption was this great goal, grand plan of God, and that necessarily involves evil life. the,
0: the uncareful way to say it, philosophy professors would, would fire me here, but yes, the uncareful way to say it is a God who is known by his people as redeemer, a God who has occasion to reveal his grace and his mercy is greater than a God who only theoretically has grace and mercy and never reveals them. That's the philosophical argument. Because God is the greatest possible being, it's unfathomable... There there can't be either your definition of great is wrong or God has it. Those are the two options. And because God is the greatest possible being, a God who actually releases grace, mercy, and forgiveness is greater than a God who simply theoretically possesses the capacity to do so. I think if that were a comprehensive reason for evil... God would not be as impressive as He is. Like, I think we can't understand it fully. I, I think that, I think that is a facet of the diamond, and there is much that is hidden. because
3: yeah, otherwise you arrive at the same like He created it to make Himself look better, or so, you know, like, like a playground.
0: That's not all wrong, though. Uh, it's just the contrast. It's not. It's, let me pull on that one for a minute and come back to the contrast. That sounds awful, but the only reason that sounds awful is because you're thinking about it as a human. It's like calling God self-absorbed. God should be self-absorbed. He should be. The only reason we think self-absorbed is wrong is because none of you people are worthy of being so self-absorbed. You're not that great. God actually is that great. And so the idea that God's greatest desire is for his greatness to be known in the greatest way, sounds awful if God's a human, (laughs) but he can actually back it up. He is that great. Um, And then, yeah, the contrast question, it's even the step, because you'll hear people say that The, the contrast question is right but I think you can even go the step further like we did with just John. It's not just having the contract. It's the, it's the, the, the use of the attribute is better than the attribute. If, if I have some grand, grand possession, but I never use it, who cares? <laughs> the, the fact that you would use, I have the capacity to bless people with millions of dollars worth of gifts, but I don't give any of them. Well, then who cares? But the fact that God actually blesses people with the gifts, that's great. Um, and yeah, these are the types of things. I think these are all good. They're all facets of the diamond. I, I don't think we can fully comprehend all the reasons for which God purposed evil to be in the world. I do think these help us to believe that there are good reasons for it. The fact that we can find a couple of these that we can latch onto uh, is helpful. Uh, all right, next. Evil has its place. It's a limited place, but it has its place in creation. John, can you read 11, uh, 8 through 11? For who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb,
3: when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed.
0: So, this is important because this isn't just generic creation language that God can tell the sea what to do. Sea means evil, it's darkness here. I made the clouds its garment, thick darkness its swaddling band. This is talking about evil. There is a place for evil in the world. But what does God say about evil? It. He set its limits. It's under his control. He fixed boundaries for it. So God invites Job to think about the sea, the symbol of disorder and chaos and danger and evil and death. Job gets it. And then you're, you're supposed to imagine the sea... Like it's a like it's a baby. <laughs> like it like it's a like it's a, a child, an infant with very strict limits. There's rules in this household, discipline about how far this can go. And God is the parent saying to the child, No further. And that's that's evil. And it's without it. God, if evil, again, I hate, to, I hate to beat up on our Arminian friends, but if there was ever a place where they need to be beat up, it's on this one. Because they're depriving themselves of comfort. How could you live comfortably, let me say it a different way. How could you keep God's command not to fear? Not to be afraid. God says that a million times in Scripture, Old and New Testament. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. How in the world could you keep that command if the role of evil in the world was something other than this? God's child, for lack of a, you know, for a weird analogy, that has fixed limits that it cannot go past. I don't like evil. I don't like suffering. I don't. But if I know that it's, it's a tool in the hand of a good and loving God, my suffering is still going to be sufferful, full of suffer, <laughs> bad. But I can sleep at night. I know it can't overtake me. If it's anything other than this. If evil is something that surprises God, if evil is something that God just has to allow, because He loves our freedom just so much, I don't know how we could ever keep God's command not to fear. The, that's why you fear God and you have nothing else to fear, because it's not going to go any further than God told it it could go.: What are God's limits?: Way beyond what we would want. But our beef is with God, not with, with not, not not some indiscriminate cosmos. That's why you have to go closer to God in, in suffering. You're 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 when you run away from God in suffering, you're running away from the only person who can do anything about it. The one and, and not responsively. Hey God, are you seeing this? Would you like to finally do something about it and take this away? No, no, no. God, what are you doing? What are you doing in me? What are you doing? Just let's figure this out, God. That back to your wrestling point earlier. What is your purpose in this because you are good? I don't know how you live without constant fear if you think evil is anything other than the seas and the waves crashing that that god has fixed boundaries for and and not just he's going to let them do their own thing and not any further their own thing is his thing (laughs) they are doing what he has purposed he "Oh, that's terrible. That makes God sound evil." I, I, it's hard. It's hard to reconcile that with a good God. I totally grant you that. The alternative is impossible. The alternative, I don't know how you sleep at night. God could let evil go so far that it could do it could drag me into the pit. It could destroy not just my body, but my soul. It feels that way. And the only way you survive when it feels that way is that you know he won't, he can't. But in their model, he could. That's terrifying. Terrifying. Yep.
3: So you just said you mentioned we don't agree with God's limits.
0: Yeah. And I
3: don't agree with them either. Mm -hmm. So is the antidote to run to who God is and his character and get to know that more?
0: You, you, how, how do you... Bad analogies, because they're human analogies, but that's analogies, right? Analogies are bad. They break down. Blah, blah, blah. We use them because they're helpful. How will you ever let your child ride their bike down the street? Is it because you Fagan won't. Is it because you have it's, it's hard for, as hard for me as it was for Fagan? Uh, it, is it because you have absolute control over the passing traffic? Is it because you have control over the bumps on the sidewalk? Is it because you are confident in the skill of all the drivers up and down the road? No. The only reason you will ever let your child ride up and down the street is because you ultimately trust God. You trust your child (laughs) and then you think oh yeah but not perfectly and so then you have to trust God. When your spouse how how, how do you um, how do you learn to trust your spouse in anything? Right? You ultimately you ultimately have to trust God. Your, your, Your spouse could be in these situations where they can cause you a great deal of pain and yet There's this require, like there's this, there's this letting go, (laughs) entering into the risk and the danger of being hurt because that is the exercise of trust. I know this person is not purposefully out to hurt me, but they might hurt me. Terrible analogies, right? It's humans, but you go back up to God. (laughs) You either trust God because when he hurts, it's not from sin. It's not on accident. It's not, it's not being inconsiderate. It's not he made a mistake. It's not that he forgot. It's not that he... When God hurts, it is purposeful. And I have to trust God. And so, yes, it's drawing into who God is, the character of God. It's doing so in Trust. Not, not simply the godness of God. <laughs> That's a big part of it. But it's trusting the godness of God. It's the goodness of God. And this is why, um, for most people, you, you, the, the way you survive the, the sea and the wickedness, the, the hardest ones. The way Job survived this is that he had faith when he went into it. It is very hard to learn, believe, trust in the goodness of God when you're crashing about in the sea.
1: And now you also have to get to the point where you say God is this enormous being that I cannot comprehend. His goodness is beyond my fathomability. And I, the, the trust piece is not that he's not going to do bad stuff to you, because he is. He is. Guaranteed. But he's not going to give you more then you need to have for your good and for his good. Yeah. So you know that there
0: is a limit. It's the problem with... It's not a problem. It's two things true at once. But it's the, it's the challenge with what's become one of our favorite expressions around here in chaos about the tornado God. The challenge with that expression, the tornado God is true if what you're talking about is our experience of it. God could wreck anything at any moment. That's what's true about the tornado God. The only thing that God cares about, that's not careful, but you know what I mean, what God cares most about is making us like Christ, and he will destroy anything else to do it. The only thing that is safe is our union with Christ. Everything else is fair game for him to destroy. That's what we mean when we say the tornado God. What's, what is unhelpful about the tornado God is if we actually think about, and this is actually what he gets wrong in the book, <laughs> what he... God is a precise surgeon. He is cutting out the exact boundaries of the cancer and not one millimeter more. It feels to us like it's chaotic and overbroad and God is surgically cutting out. There is not one unnecessary second of suffering in your life. Our experience as God, I would have come to you in faith and with way less than this. And I would have felt better about you because it would have been easier for me to believe you're good. And God knows we're wrong. Our feeling is a feeling. It's real. But we are wrong. He is surgically cutting out exactly and not one thing more or less of what needs to be destroyed. Why was
2: this thing um that about God I think it's helpful what John said earlier um, going back to who he is because it is so easy to forget and it's so easy to think about one aspect of them at the expense of
0: other things um, yeah and I gave I gave a really crummy answer to that and I'm still I'm still chewing on it because I think what I'm struggling to say is maybe this is a a Reformed Presbyterian problem. Yes. We need to have greater awareness of the attributes of God. But don't treat that as the end in itself. The end in itself is that you would love God. It's to love God. Everything else. Better understanding wrestling with deeper communion, all this language we use of the ways that you interact with God are means to an end. And the end is that you would actually love God. And that's why I struggle so much with the, with the, the language that stops at just accepting what God will do, submitting. That's an important part of it. But those are means to an end. And the end is that we would love God. It's the first and greatest commandment. It's life. And so all this other stuff, there's probably a lot of different ways to get there that include all of these things we're talking about. But the things we're talking about are not the finish line. The finish line is love of God. That's how you persevere. And the good news is, by the faith that God gives, you can love God. By the faith God gives, you will love Even when our feelings tell us, I can't love God because I don't feel he's lovable. I know he's lovable because I read about his attributes. I know he's God. I intellectually know all these things, but I do not feel as though I personally could love God. And God says, that's, that's what Satan said about Job. Can
1: I say one thing? So just how you're saying, because we have these little snippets of reasons why we should do all this, it's not the whole iceberg. I mean, it's not the whole thing. This is the tip of the iceberg, but because of these reasons, we can say all this is there. I think it's the same thing with Job. Yes, it's to test his faith, but I think that's the tip of the iceberg. We don't know what all else God was accomplishing. God could have been accomplishing... Eons
0: That's right. And, and we've, we've talked very specifically about, you know, God has these eons of purposes. A purpose with Job is that the self-righteousness would be unearthed. A purpose in the heavenly realm is that his glory would be defended. Those are not at the exclusions of, you know, a million other things. Yeah. What, what we don't know the after story of Job's counselors or Elihu, Or anybody else who saw this conversation taking place. Or anybody else that Job would minister to 20 years later after God restored him. God has so many purposes (laughs) for the things that he does. They're uncountable. And the goal of all of them is that his people would love him. Which again is back to the, that would sound pathetic coming from a human. Every single thing you do is so that people will love you.
1: You said, John, which is knowing him better, you're going to love him more because it's going to be more realistic.
0: Yeah, I do. That's my favorite thread in, in terms of loving God more is going to his attributes and studying and knowing him better. That's the one that's most effective for me. And I think that's one that everybody should participate in. But we are in real danger when we act as though that is the finish line. I read a book on the attributes of God and I know about God's love. Do you love God? so different. They're on the same path. (laughs) They're not the same thing. We're done. Thank you.